I'm Jasmine Falk Dickerson. Welcome to the podcast. My guest is an advocate of self-advocacy. Born in the Pacific Northwest, she was adopted and raised by a white family as a black child. Her insights on race, culture, and privilege are deeply enlightening. Anchored in a strong sense of self, she has marched through life with grace and wisdom from a very early age. Today, I want you to meet Elisa McDuff. So my guest today is the wonderful Alisa McDuff, my dear friend and one of the most amazing goddesses I know. She's the second guest in the series that I am holding this month, and it's the um, series that um, highlights Black excellence because we are in Black History Month. Um, and I can't even tell you how, just how deeply uh, inspired I am by her, um, her, not just her wisdom, but her delivery of her wisdom. And you will notice that. You will definitely feel that as you listen to the episode. This is a really um, calm and very thoughtful um, delivery. Uh, Elisa is just one of those kind of wise souls. She's... Um, her presence is really comforting and reassuring and also very inspiring. And I always feel like I got this when I talk to her. There's very little room for anger and aggression in Elisa's world. And that's one of the things I think that has helped her move through life with the uh, the, the crazy um, amounts of challenges that she's had. We don't talk a lot about most of those challenges that she's had because Elisa doesn't focus on that. She focuses on the aftermath of the challenge or the experience to go through the challenge. And again, this has been sort of her way of being from the moment she showed up in the world as a very young child. I'm not going to tell you much about her story because I want you to hear it from her personally. But as you listen, I want you to keep in mind that Elisa comes to us from a very interesting perspective because of her upbringing. This may not be the true uh, and the true and uh, lived experience for many. And I'm sure that many will say, well, she's in a very different position. And so naturally, that's her perspective. And that's a fair argument. But ultimately, what I want you to hear in Elisa's message is that we are all human. We are all coming from the same place of wanting the same things. We all ought to look at each other and think of each other in the same way, regardless of the way we look, where we come from, what our upbringing looked like. And I think that's the uh, resonating message of um, of this wonderful, wise woman. So um, really, be prepared to... Take a deep breath, and it's almost like a meditation. Uh, really, I felt like this this recording felt like a meditation because I was my nerves were calm. I was in such a peaceful space. Uh, that's not to say that when I'm excited and I'm talking to people who are, uh, you know, keeping the pace a little different in terms of whether it's like energetic excitement or you know funny or whatever every guest has had their amazing unique gifts elisa's gift is really this very very poised and meditative presence and uh 
and it was a gift. So I, I hope you um, embrace it and benefit from it just like I have. My dearest Alisa, here we are. We are not in a coffee shop like we usually are. We're not sitting sipping on a delicious latte or a hot chocolate or tea. We're actually doing this via Zoom. And uh, immediate preface, your connection is a little tricky. So we're going to try to see if we can make this work today because this is such an important conversation and one that I have been desperately wanting to have. So first off, welcome, my dear. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. This is amazing. I'm celebrating Black Excellence this month because it is Black History Month, and I couldn't think of a better person to uh, talk to today to highlight some of those really important aspects of our educational growth as a nation and as a people. And uh, and so we're going to touch a lot upon that. But before we start, I want to ask you... Um, the question that I've been asking everyone, how has your life been since the pandemic hit, since we've gone into lockdown? Because you live fairly rurally, and you tend to come to town very often for all kinds of things. But so how has that affected your your life in the last nine months or so? I have become a homebody much, much more. It's nice because my teenager can drive, so that gives me the option to stay home. Um, stay safe. I still go into town. I still have many doctor's appointments um, and pick up groceries. Other than that, it's been great because the lifestyle that I've had before quarantine is now called quarantine. <laughs> so I a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, uh, I, one of my favorite things about, you know, spending time with you is that you are a very one on one person and, and you do take care of yourself and, and you're very, very in tune with your need to create that boundary for yourself. And like you said, your lifestyle to a large extent felt like quarantine before quarantine was a thing. And I think that's one of the lessons I've learned from you is just slowing down. And uh, that being said, you've never really deprived yourself or your daughter from the experiences that are out there. And, and boy, have you guys explored with some very rich experiences. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue to chat. But one of the things that I remember when I first met you was this instant connection. There was just this magical magnet that happened between us. And lo and behold, as we got to know each other more and more, I think it was both of our life experiences that have thrust us into the role of bridge, of um, social advocate, but also as a kind of an ambassador and uh, an educator of the various worlds that we've belonged to that are so vast and different. And so I really want to start there because I think that context is just gorgeous for the listener to hear. Tell us about your upbringing and your childhood because you've had a very unique upbringing. <laughs> yes, I have. Um, when I was two, my mother, um, who was black, married my father, who was white. Um, she died when I was six, and he legally adopted me. Because he's not your birth and father. And a couple of years later. 
he is not my birth father. Mm -hmm. And mind you, all this was happening in the 70s and in the Olympia area. Um, Very odd. And I can't imagine the trials that they had in their too brief time together. When I was eight, he remarried. I call her my mom. So I have my mother and my mom. And my mom is also white. So then from eight until this day, um, my parents have been white. Because your, your um, birth side. mom passed away. Right. When I was six. Mm-hmm. Her family, who I still am in touch with, um, is in like Chicago and Mississippi area. Mm-hmm. But my family here in Washington is all white. Mm-hmm. On both sides. It was interesting and had an impact on my life in ways that I don't think they fully appreciated at the time, as far as there not being anyone who looked like me mm. around, not being anyone because I was adopted. There wasn't anyone shaped like me in my family. Mm. So puberty and all of that was a surprise to all three of us Mm. because they couldn't say, oh, yeah, I remember when my sister hit this age or anything like that. I was um, unique in my family. Um, And in the area, I did really well in school, which was a blessing and I think helped me with my popularity in my younger years. Um, I was popular. Mm -hmm. I don't remember being picked on, um, but a few times Um, I was also ready, always ready to fight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I remember being called, when I was riding my bike past a house in our neighborhood, the kids who I didn't know, which was unusual because I lived in the same neighborhood from four to 18, hmm. were calling me Oreo. And as I rode back the other way, I said, well, people like Oreos more than they like vanilla wafers. <laughs> way to um, go. <laughs> and kept it pushing. Um, and they just kind of stood there like, huh? <laughs> That's awesome. So between my sense of humor, my ability to make adults like me and being willing to fight if necessary and winning fights, I um, had a reputation of somebody that you don't mess with. And by the time I hit late elementary school, I had a great life. (laughs) I didn't have to defend myself. It was always, oh, no, you don't, you don't want to mess with her. You're going to get in trouble by the teachers and the principal because they adore her. Um, Or she's going to make you feel very silly or she's going to beat you up. One of the three. 
it's not worth it. Where do you think that came from, though? Where where do you think this strength of character comes from? Because this is not the everyday average story of a, a black adopted child. Um, the struggles are tend to be a lot greater than than that. And yet you could have been that, you know, that more common story. But something about either you or your upbringing or your parents, any set of parents helped you form this type of um, protection, if you will, and then as a consequence also helped others understand that you were more than what you looked like and no one ever messed with that. What do you think exactly pinpointing that particular influence in your life? I know that my mother was uh, a very strong personality. So genetically, I inherited that from her. And I always, always felt loved. And from all my family on mm. all sides. So I felt very supported. Mm. I knew that if I got in trouble and it was for a good reason, you know, my actions made sense to my mom, she always stood up for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any barriers Mm -hmm. to being like that. That's amazing. You know, it was, it was, and it was different. I noticed it was different from some kids when they would transfer in um, quite close to Fort Lewis. So we'd have some people transfer in. I think the other part of it is I grew up in the area, lived down here since, I was two years old Mm -hmm. and it was very small community at that time. Lacey had one elementary school Mm. and I went to it. And again, I was smart. So I had the backing of the adults. And when kids see that they treat you differently as well. And I was, I was, tall I hit like five foot three in sixth grade and I haven't grown since but (laughs) (laughs) but for a kid you were tall (laughs) for a kid I was tall yeah yeah um so let's talk about this then let's let's talk about let's flip it and talk about your actual um parents perspective so when your dad came in the picture he you know he fell in love with your mom and decided he wanted the package he wanted her and he wanted her daughter and completely showed up for you as any father would. And, and I know this for a fact because I've heard you talk, you know, about him. I've met him at school functions because our kids went to this similar homeschool, unschool, alternative school. And, um, so he, he took that on. And when your mom passed away, it was obviously very tragic and painful, but he decided he was in a hundred percent and he decided he was going to make sure that he was, uh, there for you, regardless and no matter what, that he was going to carry on what he and your mom had started in raising you and providing the best life for you. Was there a a moment where, A, you wondered about that? I think I know the answer. But was there a moment where he ever wondered if he would be the right parent for you? Because now, the the most symbolic figure in your life, your mother, and, you know, someone that you looked like was no longer there. 
Did he ever wonder culturally if he was going to succeed? I don't believe so. I, um, at the time, up until I was 16, my mother's sister lived in Lakewood. And he knew he had her to help as well for some of the cultural parts. Mm-hmm. I just think he knew he wanted to do what my mother would have wanted him to do, mm. which was keep me and care for me and love me. And so that's what he did. Well, and then when he remarried a few years after that, how was uh, the adjustment with a new mom and new siblings? Because your um, your mom came into, and we don't use the word step. You and I have talked about this a lot. We've never used step or adopted parent. So it might be confusing to the listener. And it sounds weird if we were to say, you know, white mom, but your, your, your new mom at the time when you were a kid, when your dad remarried, here comes a mom with kids of her own from a previous marriage. And so now you have new siblings and you are literally immersed in a completely white family. What are some of the things that you think you all implemented immediately that made it such a healthy and such a a functional experience? Again, because this is not the norm. Correct. To begin my siblings, I never lived with them. They're very much older than me. The next youngest is about 12 years older. So she was Actually, both my sisters were married when um, my folks got married. And they never used the word step. To this day, they never have. Mm -hmm. I'm their sister. And my my children, because I have two stepchildren, they're their nieces. You know, there's, there's never been any delineation between... This is my sister. This is my stepsister. We're just all have always been siblings. I'm not sure where that attitude came from, from my mom. Um, I find it absolutely amazing. I consider myself extremely blessed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's another reason why... I've been able to move through the world with confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is because my parents were white, my view of white people different than black children who had black parents. Yeah. A lot of times white people are put on, a pedestal because they are by society, mm-hmm. you know, by TV, by music, by everything. And because they were my family, I knew that they were just like me. My whole white family are just like my black family. They're people. Wow. Wow. And that gave me a different perspective as well as I got older because I didn't, I didn't have to guess at their different mannerisms. And, you know, the interesting things I've heard since, 
all white people love mayonnaise. Well, not in my family. Mayonnaise <laughs> is not a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> or they don't season their food. Okay, well, my family seasons their food wow. quite heavily. Wow. Um, they don't eat fried things. My family, we love us some fried <laughs> stuff. So just such a different perspective because I've had it most of my life. Um, and coming up and everything just gave me a different confidence because I was, I was actually the smart sibling. Um, and being a black child in a white family being considered, you know, oh yeah, this one. I mean, all my siblings are brilliant. Mm-hmm. They all truly are. I was the one my mother, because I was young, my mother hoped would go on to achieve great things. My mom, I mm-hmm, should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I never, I never felt less than anyone else around me. And b- before we move on to like the the adult. Lisa and the adult version of of the story, I want to ask a question right here because I think it's poignant. Because again, you and I've had so many conversations around this subject and others, but this particular one about just like how our experiences and how our culture and our surroundings um, influence who we become in the world. I've always been struck by the fact that you, while you have a very strong and proud racial identity, you have never let that be the only version of yourself or the prominent version of yourself that is influenced by what society is expecting, right? So your identity has been formed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And I think that's really important because a lot of people form their identities by what's outside. When you were growing up, would you say that you uh, and I'm asking simply to know exactly so that the listener also can relate to the story um, in, in, a, in a really deep level. Would you say that you were blessed to not experience racism compared to most other black kids? And, and the second part of that question is, would you say that you experienced more racism today in today's America as an adult as opposed to the Elisa growing up? you know, as a child in the 70s and 80s? I would have to say I I just haven't experienced it in the typical ways or if it occurred, I didn't recognize it as such and was always myself and kept it pushing and got, you know, like if I was in a store or something, I always got what I wanted. So it wasn't an issue as an adult being able to recognize it more. I have had times where I've had to get a little bit firm and put people back in their place. Mm -hmm. Um, And make them understand who they're talking to mm-hmm. and their assumptions are not valid and they shouldn't have them because 
99.5 times out of 100, they're incorrect. Right, right. And I try, when I find myself having to do that, I do try to do that in a very loud public way to make sure that the lesson stays, gets internalized for them. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such an important reflection because I think people are so triggered um, before they're even in a situation. And I think you've really displayed that grace of, of, um, well, of, of, sheer humanness, right? You, you've really given yourself permission to know who you are. And again, I go back to that thing that that was one of the first things that attracted me about you was that you really knew who you were. You sit in your in yourself and in your body and in your essence with, with great understanding. That doesn't mean that you're not growing every day and there's room for expansion and, and evolution, of course. But I think if you start with that, you're blessed because it's it's a huge starting point. Many often seek that before they can move on. And you, you kind of came into the world with that. I, I'm really curious to know um, how your own upbringing, your family, your story has influenced the way you raised your amazing daughters, because you do have three three daughters, um, three beautiful, strong black daughters in a world today where there's so much around the black woman identity, both negative and positive. How have you used your upbringing, that confidence that you have, that almost um, shedding the impositions of racial identity that's imposed upon you and still raise queens? So there is a saying it's on t-shirts, a bit hippie, a bit hood. (laughs) And I've always liked that. And I had it as, you know, a tagline on one of my social profiles. My youngest child saw it and told me, mother, that's not right. It needs to be a lot of hippie, a bit hood. Wow, I love that. And when we talked about it more, and I agreed with her, so I changed it. When we talked about it, it was because she says your hood can come out when necessary, but you select it. Mm. You know, you have your hippie persona because that's your baseline. And you give a person a couple chances and then the hood can can occur. That's amazing. And so that's a little bit of it. And also raising, I I was never raising children. I've never raised a child. Um, I've raised three adults and I've taken that. Um, Khalil Gibran has a poem the archer and which she says, we are, but the bow and arrow. We are, but the bow, the child is the arrow and God is the archer. Wow. So if I'm raising adults, I don't treat them like children. They should be seen and they should be heard. Yep. They should have their likes and dislikes considered that's the only way that they're going to learn that their opinion matters, that who they are matters, that what they like matters. 
And also, they can't always get what they want, and that's okay. But they should give it a really good a good try, right. like we adults should. If I go into a restaurant, I want what I want. If it's on your menu, I want it that way. Um, and I'm not going to shy down because... Oh, okay. You told me I can't have that today. All right. 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 It just, yeah. as you know, my, none of my girls <laughs> are shy and retiring. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Would you say that their experience um, today, especially in today's America, and not even four years ago, like today, would you say that their experience and their view of the world has changed a little bit? Or would you say that they are so confident in their anchoring and uh, rooted upbringing that even what's happening in the world today does not in any way affect how they choose to move forward? It definitely does not affect how they choose to move forward. It has given my youngest need of conversation with me Mm -hmm. around the world's happenings, but it hasn't slowed her down. She's taken it very much in a way of learning but it has not changed what she believes is her position in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That that's that's huge. I mean, that right there is what every parent hopes that they can say about their child because we are constantly preoccupied with the humans that they will become when they are completely on their own. Even though, of course, as parents, we're always here till the last day that we're on this earth. But there is this sense of like at some point they take it upon themselves to say, I am marching forth through life and I will only run to mom or dad when I'm needing, you know, a hug or an extra cuddle. Um, and yes, even as adults, they still do that because um, I know I do. But one one thing I do want to ask you right here, because um, it seems really appropriate and poignant. So this summer we saw a lot of kind of shakeup and awakening. Um, it's an issue that the world has been dealing with forever. And certainly this country has been racism did not show up this summer in 2020 because George Floyd was murdered. Uh, Racism has existed for, um, well, ever since this country was discovered by the Europeans. And this summer, however, a lot of people realized that they were complicit with their silence because they didn't think that by not being racist, you're really not part of the problem. Just because you're fairer skinned or lighter skinned um, doesn't mean you're automatically an oppressor or a racist person. But I think a lot of people checked their privilege and checked their racism in ways that they never knew existed. I know this for a fact because a lot of people in my life have definitely come to that awakening and it's, it's wonderful, right? But it also puts forth a a great degree of confusion. Because you're a person that has lived in both worlds with such confidence and such love and support, I think people like you are the ones that can really speak to this issue because you don't come from a place of anger, and anger is important. You don't come from a place of trigger and trauma, and trigger and trauma is important. 
But equally important is peace, love, uh, acceptance, um, communication. I think all of those energies are necessary. And you and I know that because we, we share very much a lot of our spiritual uh, um, belief system and, and our healing system um um, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. But knowing that, what would you say is the best message you can give allies today without coming across as the heroes or the saviors? How would you encourage an ally, specifically white people and, you know, non-black people that are privileged to move this needle in the right direction? Oh, that's a tough one. My first thought when it all happened, and I talk it through, mm-hmm. was it's about time. Mm-hmm. And where y'all been? Mm-hmm. Um, I know you thought we were crazy. And you should now see that. We very obviously were not. These issues have been here. Um, they haven't gone away. They have just been swept under the carpet, tried to be pushed back behind doors. Uh, I would say that the plight of your brothers and sisters, no matter what their color, is your plight. Mm. that the astonishment of what has happened over the last four years is something those of us of color have seen coming and knew existed. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it wasn't in the forefront and you didn't want to hear that it was happening led to January 6th. Yeah. And it has become your problem. Mm. You can't ever think the plight of a person who looks different from you, who is a different sex than you, who is in a different country than you because of our global society, mm-hmm. is not you. Yeah. They are. They're you. They're your ch- children. They're your grandchildren. George Floyd, I have no, I've never, had never met the man. Mm. Most of us hadn't. Mm -hmm. But many of us cried. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No matter what our color. Because it made very clear the oneness of humanity. Yeah can never be silent again, can never be silent, can never be complacent. Yeah, because that was the moment where if, if you were going to stay silent, you've shown your true colors. 
And and you and I have talked about, you know, some folks that we are acquaintances with that have shown their true colors in those moments because we, you know, hung out, we, we talked to certain people where, you know, everything seemed normal. We were sharing the parenting journey. We're sharing the human journey. We, we have a, a, a similar, like, interest in the way life is led. But then something happened when Trump was elected. And then after that, when all of these things started coming up, and we've talked about it, about how, how hurtful that is, you know, when on one hand and on one end, you know, they're telling you, of course, we love you, you, we care about you, we don't see color, which is a problem, because if you don't see color, that's a problem, too, because yes. that gives you permission to then turn around and say, yes, you know, make America great again, and, you know, Trump 2020, and stop the steal and all that stuff. It's, it's such a fine, almost transparent line between those two worlds. And I used to think that colorblind was a good thing. And I realized that that was yet another way to dismiss people of color, dismiss that struggle, and dismiss the fact that these differences are disservicing people of color. And so knowing that and seeing that and coming to the point that we are today, where do you think privilege sits? Um this is a conversation that I've been having a lot with people. Is privilege really in color? Is it in financial status? Is it in the education? Um, many argue, well, I mean, black people that have educated themselves are able to move up the ladder, are able to, right? No. Okay. No. Go for no. it. No. There, there is most definitely still white privilege. When you can be an educated, wealthy black man and walk into your apartment complex and have some woman, a white woman, a, if you will, a Karen, call the police on you. And her words are, there is a black man breaking into an apartment and you have to get on the ground and put your hands on your head in your apartment that your wealth that your education has paid for that shows that there is white privilege because it doesn't doesn't matter the suit you're wearing doesn't matter the shoes you're wearing doesn't matter the watch if you say look i have all this stuff I'm obviously not breaking in. The next phrase is going to be, where did you steal it? Mm. Yeah. When I walked into a, the tutoring center at a community college in my 20s, the first question I was asked is, what do you need help with? I was shocked. Actually, I wasn't 20. I was right out of high school. I was 18. Mm. I didn't know what to say. So I handed her my slip and I said, my math teacher wants me to come in and tutor, sign up to be a tutor for my math class. 
Whoa. Because he doesn't have anyone at Mass 106. He doesn't have anyone to be a tutor. Wow. That's why I'm here. Wow. There is white privilege. That would not have happened had I been a white girl. It just wouldn't have happened. So you walked in and instead of them just assuming that you're there for a million other reasons, and granted, it is a tutoring center, and so most students that come in are coming in to be tutored, but there was an immediate assumption that you needed help. And and the tone, because I've heard her talk to other students who have walked in since, because I did become a tutor, she didn't use the same tone. It wasn't, oh... Hi there, little black girl. Wow. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. And my thought was, what, why didn't she just say, how can I help you? Wow, that, that's huge. You, you bring up a really, really big point because, um, because we really have two ways of approaching this from you know a non-black perspective. There's the perspective that says, oh, there's a person that is darker skinned than I am, I'm going to immediately assume that they're black and here's how I'm going to be a better person and help them and do all the right things, right? That token behavior, which is so, you know, damaging and harmful. So there's that on one end, there's that. And then on the other end, there is what we saw also this summer, you know, the protesters that were protesting Black Lives Matter that were being attacked and and definitely more black protesters attacked and physically hurt than white protesters. But then take that whole protest experience and compare it to the insurrection on the 6th and how all of those protesters, and I'm putting it between quotations, slash terrorists, were attacking the state capitol and um, nothing was being physically done in response. Now, the argument today is, well, they were overwhelmed, they weren't, you know, um, uh, sufficiently staffed or armed or whatever you want to call it to defend that situation. I cannot imagine if those people that came to the state capitol were there for BLM and were primarily people of all ethnicities and colors, how the response would have been. I just can't help but think about that. What are your thoughts? All the black people would be dead. Mm. And there would have been more than one white person killed. Again, history. Our country has a history of this has a history of treating white allies as traitors. Oh wow, that's 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 powerful. We we've seen it time and time again. We've seen unarmed black people shot by the police when the police knew they were unarmed, mm. knew that there was no fear for their lives. We've seen that. Mm -hmm. We've seen police called on innocent black people, especially men, sitting in their car waiting for their kid to get out of little league practice. We've seen this happen over and over again. So if there had been Black Lives Matter protesters immediately would have been called terrorists by many news 
I'd say by much of the news Mm -hmm. and much more of them shot, especially since there is evidence that some of the police officers were also protesters. Right. Yep. And, you know, who knows how they helped infiltrate the situation to the extent that it had, you know, in terms of their ability to, to break through so many barriers and, and, and just go for it. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Right. That's a really good point. The Secret Service, I will say, did an amazing job. And uh, as far as D.C. police, (laughs) well, you know, the resignations and the firings speak for themselves. Correct. Yeah. And so with this, you know, with this kind of background, um, bringing both past and present history to the forefront and recognizing the difference in how people respond and how people react, I I want to... um, I want to also address other issues where there are um, um, injustices, because you told us from the very beginning, you shared with us your experience, you've been privileged in the sense that you didn't suffer the same way a lot of, you know, um, black kids and black adults have, and you recognize that. That doesn't mean that you're separated from the experience. Your your heart hurts just the same, and it should, oh, because yeah. we're human beings, and you said that. These are human brothers and sisters and human children and grandchildren. This is not just about the color. It shouldn't be about the color. Um, one of the areas that I think has been really uh, shocking to see where some of those um, indiscrepancies are is also healthcare. Because right now this is the pandemic, and we are going through COVID, and we've seen the kind of care that um, people of color receive when they are hit with COVID, um, and just how completely unequal and unequitable the approaches to take care of uh, marginalized communities has been. But for you specifically, this also hits in a personal way in a different way. And I want to ask about your experience in that way, because you've also had a very um, challenging and also inspiring health journey story. You've gone through some ups and downs and you've had some struggles and you are very much uh, immersed in natural healing and alternative healing and things like that. So I'd like to spend a minute here to talk about it. First, let's start by talking about how you think that some of these alternative healing modalities and and self-care, how available or non-available they are to marginalized communities. Do you think that there's a, a barrier and a gap for everyone to... Uh, achieve this kind of service or or opportunity? Most definitely. When you consider that marginalized societies have a hard time getting produce aside from some limp iceberg lettuce and a rock-hard tomato, them getting any kind of natural healing services is going to be nil. Um, Another anecdote where I definitely recognized um, racism, I was in Mississippi, down south, visiting family, and I was sick, and my uncle took me to a clinic. Now, my grandmother, 
who my uncle lived with, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. And we didn't know what was wrong with me. So they didn't, you know, we didn't call my parents. Um, he just took me to a clinic, paid his 20 bucks or whatever it was for me to be seen. The doctor walked into the room and said, you have strep. Prescribed me some meds, walked out. We picked up the medication, um, went back to my grandma's house. My aunt came over like a couple days later and was like, you look awful. Hmm. And at this time, I had been back to the doctor because I was getting worse. And his response was, you can't expect to get better. Here's some suppositories for pain. And sent back home. Okay. My aunt worked at a hospital and said, I think I need to take you to the emergency room go into the emergency room. They took take my temperature, which was not done by the doctor, by the way. He literally just looked at me. Wow. Didn't look down my throat, nothing. Whoa. Didn't take a culture. He literally walked into the room, looked at me, declared that I had strep, wow. and walked out. Oh, man. Went to the emergency room. They took my temperature. It was 106. Hmm. Hmm. I was being cook, cooking myself from the inside out. Mm. I actually had mono. Oh, wow. And heat stroke. Eesh. Wow. I was in the hospital for a week. Had my organs, my organs x-rayed every day to make sure that they hadn't shut down under the high temperature. Wow. Clear liquid diet. I didn't eat anything solid for the first for six days, only until the day of my discharge did they allow me to try something solid. Wow. And that was because poor, black. Wow. Who cares? He didn't care. And, and you know that your experience had all this happened in Olympia with your parents and your white parents took you to the doctor or the hospital, the, the, the treatment would have been immediate and so different. The attention you would have received would have been so different, wouldn't you say? Oh, most definitely. And, and is still. Mm. I've only had the experience of a couple of people um, in my health odyssey i did not appreciate and basically again fired because i have that Jeanne said, say, no mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you're right. not for me absolutely and that's advo- advocacy right that's where you are so yeah. good at i i i love i love that you you circled it in so perfectly and segued this for me with with utter perfection because i wanted to talk about how you, you talked a lot about your own um we didn't use the word advocacy earlier but your own advocacy for yourself and who you are in this world and we spoke about that specifically under the racial and cultural umbrella but let's talk about it under the health umbrella as well 
you've done some amazing things in the last few years. I've watched you, um, and I've I've always been in awe of how committed you are to take care of yourself because of the, the struggles that you've uh, faced. But also, you know, with going back to school, and you and I have talked about that and share that because I also went back to school as an adult. Um, I want to talk first about, you know, just to continue the the topic of, of um, self-care and um, healing, I want to talk a little bit about some of the steps that you have taken in recent years and the permission that you've given yourself to advocate and take care of yourself. Because I think it's so important that as women, we spend a minute acknowledging that and the importance of that. Oh, gosh, where to begin? I've had a series of... uh, came, I guess, probably after speaking to my mom made brought very much to the forefront an autoimmune condition Mm. between the accidents and having someone tell me oh no your hip pain is because you're out of shape which brings up the whole not just black not just female but also being morbidly obese Right. It's just because you're out of shape. Your back hurts and your hip hurts because you're out of shape. No, B, actually they hurt because I had a car hit my leg and land me on my backside, tore part of a tendon, gave me bursitis and sheared off the little things between my spine and my hip bones that cushion that area. Mm. That's why they hurt. And I'm going to fire you too. (laughs) And with my amazing GP, continue to look for answers until we find out what's causing this. And giving myself permission, which this has been the hardest thing, is to recognize I'm no longer going to the full-time working single mother always of course a mother and now that she's grown but I'm, I'm not going to live life as I did or life as I saw it mm. that was the hardest thing to give myself permission to lean into mm. to know that rest was one of my mantras. Naps are good. Naps are okay. Mm -hmm. Had to teach myself that. Had to make sure, regardless of how tired I got or get, that I continue to move forward to get answers and to find treatments that resonate with me and who I am at my core. And that's another time when my upbringing has helped me. My parents worked at Madigan. Their friends were doctors. I never saw doctors as nothing. You know, they're people with doctorates, but they're still people. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem 
disagreeing or arguing with them. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, which has stood me in good stead. Otherwise, I still wouldn't know what any of my issues were. Yeah. I just would know I'm in pain, got to a point where I couldn't walk. And that would just be my life. Um, instead of coming out of that, starting to see the other side of that somewhat. Um, you know, that's, that's an issue with our health care, which is a whole nother talk in and of itself. That's right. Yeah. But being a black woman is a difficult thing in the healthcare system. Uh, we're given diagnoses and pills more quickly. Um, oh, you're here. Well, you're fat, so let's see. You're fat, you're a woman, diabetes. You have diabetes, right? Nope. Wow. Well, you have heart disease, right? Whoa. No. Sleep apnea, right? Nope. Wow. What's wrong with you? You're you're a you're a fat black woman. You must have these things. Wow. Well, that must be what's causing your pain. No. There's something else. Um. And as a race we have grown not to trust the healthcare system to not trust to not to trust mm -hmm. and not just with our physical health but most definitely with our mental health mm -hmm. again it's one of those times when we walk in and people don't look like us that's huge it's very hard for some people especially with mental health to talk to, say, an older white man about what it's like to be a black woman. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's an image right there. You know, so I've had great insurance all my life parents who've worked in the medical field who taught me you go for your checkups doctors are just people who happen to work in a different part of the profession than they do and they really are there to help you so you so, so you learned this the skill of advocacy from very young. It sounds like your parents have also made sure that they took advantage of your own personal strength and your own kind of self-confidence and self-assurance and built on that self-advocating no matter what, including when you're around experts. And that that's, I think, a huge, huge part of um, 
a huge part of what's missing in our culture and our society today is we are so trusting of experts. You know, if you have experience, yes. if you have a degree in something, um, and and that shows also in the fact that you know just to seek jobs, no one's hired unless they have experience that's on paper, a degree that's on paper. And yet we know some people have far more experience without that piece of paper, far more qualified than people. And I'm not talking about medicine, obviously. I'm not saying that you can be a doctor without that kind of training. I'm talking about just the yeah normal world, because you and I talked about this, and it, and it helps me tie in that question about going back to school. You know, you've gone back to school a couple of times, you've um, re reinvented yourself in different ways. What are you doing right now? Tell me what's going on with your um, current uh, continued expansion as a person. So... The last time I had gone back to school for business administration is when my psoriatic arthritis uh, was diagnosed. Mm. I wasn't able to type mm. um, or use my wrists. So that was diagnosed and I'm currently on disability and I, you know, I'm 51. I, <laughs> I can't be like, Oh, well, that's the end of my working life. Oh gosh. No. That, that, yeah. It doesn't sit well. So I, um, worked with DVR department of vocational rehabilitation. There's a lot of people who don't know of that mm-hmm. um, they're through the state of Washington and they help people with disabilities find employment and in my case I had everything set to have employment but I physically couldn't do any of the things that I was trained in mm. so I worked with them I am now currently attending um, yoga veda online and I'm in my second year of training to be an Ayurvedic practitioner. That is so awesome. Um, one of the reasons I want to be this is because of the marginalized people. When we had spoken a little bit earlier, you had brought up them having access to natural medicines. I will be able to do that. Yeah. I started Yoga Veda on scholarship, paying out of my pocket, because I knew no matter what DVR said, I wanted to do it and I wanted to get started. And that was what my scholarship application was about. And one of my clients is my daughter's boyfriend's mother who has no access mm-hmm. at the current time to anything other than, you know, here's some pills. Right, right. Right. And you're absolutely right. When you step into a yoga space or you uh, step into a kind of an alternative healing space which you and I both love and we're a big part of and we've um participated in several events together 
um, including some with our friend Annie, who was also a guest on my podcast uh, early in the season, uh, who's an amazing yoga teacher, Ayurvedic practitioner, and her list of credentials is amazing. And, and I know that you've done a lot of studying with her. But one of the big things that is very noticeable when we walk into these spaces is that there aren't many uh, minorities in these spaces. And it's not because they're not welcome. It's just because culturally, there is very little, if no representation in some parts of the country, especially. So I think that having that is huge. And it reminds me of just watching Kamala Harris, you know, become VP. She hits so many things on the list for people. Like for me, she speaks to me as a woman. I've wanted to see a woman up there. And uh, also as an immigrant, because her parents are both immigrants. And so, and then of course, she, you know, reaches out to black women and to South Asian women. And there, there are just so many things that are wrapped around representation because it's inspiration. And so for you to be in a position where you can say, no, this is for everybody. This is not just for cool white hippie people or for people in India. This is literally for everybody because it is a discipline that helps you connect with everything. And I mean, when you look at true African um roots and African heritage, and even some of the uh, islands where there is still a very strong African influence, there's such a connection with nature and such a connection with the way we can heal through the earth. And those are all aspects of the entire global existence. And yet we've we've made it now kind of a, a fad or something hip and popular. And I love that you are deconstructing that and going for it, because it's so, so important. I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you because, A, I adore you, and B, because I watched your journey, and it's amazing. I feel finally in the right place. Uh, it's great. I'm in school with Annie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we have classes together. So awesome. Um, and the thought of being able to bring it to people who so desperately need it. And there's also the cost factor, right? Yeah. Um, right now, because I'm in training, I'm not charging for, you know, to do profiles, to go ahead and give recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another credential that I'll be working on later this year, mm-hmm. which is one our friend Annie just got that will, it's a coaching credential that many insurances will accept. So between the two, I will be able to bill insurance and the patient doesn't have to pay. That's awesome. And so important because of the communities that you are really hoping to serve and to, to hit hard with with um, accessibility, because that's all it is. Because privileged people, even regardless yeah. of race, um, if you're economically privileged, you have access to all these things. But folks who are not as economically stable really do need that. And um, the more services we can provide that don't break their pockets or turn them away is is crucial. It's so important. Alisa, you are one of literally my favorite people in the whole entire world. You are one of my favorite humans. I absolutely adore you. And I'm so, so glad that we got to do this. Um, Being able to just sit and chat with you 
and go over all the different things that we love, which we didn't do today because we didn't do everything. We did some of what we love, right? Uh, but I really felt like um, creating this just beautiful, peaceful, wise space and um, speaking to a goddess who has really shown up in the world with all of her magical essence. And we haven't even talked about that. But another conversation has to be, uh, you know, kept in mind and maybe take place around just the goddess energy. You you are a walking goddess. And I love that. I thank you for your your kind of your honesty and your um your generosity of spirit, because I think that's what it takes in these moments. These are hard conversations to have. They're very hard topics to address. And and people are scared. They're nervous. They're anxious. They don't know how to approach it. And you've given so much permission here to think about these things in a non-threatening way, but rather in a in a human way. And that's that's what it all boils down to. Thank you so much for having me on. It was wonderful. Well, before I let you go so completely... And before I let you go completely, because I do this to all of my guests, I, I, I am going to play a very, very quick, rapid fire, a speed round question thing. So first answer that comes to mind, I want you to, to shoot. Okay. Ready? All right. Oils or spices? Spices. Books or movies? Books. Favorite veggie? Asparagus. Asparagus. That's a good one. Mm-mm. Um, country that you'd like to visit that you haven't visited. Morocco. Ah, oh, Morocco. That's such a good choice. I love that. Um, okay. Your biggest inspiration. Person, thing. It could be anything. My mother. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, okay. So let's see. Your all-time favorite band, music, musicians. Wow. Um, I would have to say Freddie Mercury. So Freddie Queen, you're going with that vibe. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> um, favorite yeah. season? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> Such a Northwest Pacific Northwest girl. Um and let's see, um, what is your dosha? I am tridoshic. Mm, that's awesome. That is awesome. I, I am a freak of nature, yes. <laughs> freak of nature. <laughs> I love that. Wouldn't want it any other way. All right, here's my last question um, and the question that all my guests get asked. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Yes. Oh, you're, you're team yes. And I, as an Italian, cannot accept that. But I still love you. <laughs> I love you, too. And look, there's plenty of things that different parts of Italy put on pizza that Americans don't agree with. So, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. You're, you're fair enough. You you bring a good argument, and you know pizza has been adopted by so many cultures now. It's very hard for Italians to claim it. Alisa, I wish you the very very best. I'm so excited. Once you are all certified, I want you to come back and I want you to talk about how the world of your um, professional expansion is serving communities and how we can make sure that we are supporting you and helping you support the communities that you want to work with. Uh, I wish you the very, very best. And I adore you. Thank you. Right back at you. <laughs> <laughs>
This podcast is produced and recorded by Dante Falk. Edited and mixed by Eros Falk. Original music by Dante and Eros Falk. Recorded in Olympia, Washington at Casa Nostra Studios. Visit the website, jasminefalkdickerson.com. Ciao for now. Thank you.